All right, let's turn. John chapter 12. Kicking off a whole new chapter this morning. But let us remember those chapter divisions, while important for helping us find where we are in the text, weren't there. They don't mean that we've moved on to a new topic. It's actually very connected to what lies ahead of, uh, behind it. So, we'll be doing uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Hear the word of our God. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, grant us hearts to understand you and your word, to understand ourselves and our need. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear of the greatness of your love for us in Christ Jesus, whom you sent as a propitiation for our sins, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Love can make you do crazy things sometimes. I was surprised, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, there was a member of Presbytery who came up to me, and I wasn't expecting this at all. Uh, we've mostly corresponded via email and uh, on Facebook, and he said, you know what? Here's my tie. I thought, why do you have a Red Sox tie? You're a Giants fan, to which he replied, well, that's my American League team. And so he gave that which had been given to him, and he gave it to me, thinking that I would get far more use out of it than he would. Not sure why he did that. I'm thankful that he did that. Love doesn't make us do crazy things, as I've mentioned in Sunday school, like Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. That's not what I'm talking about. But there are things that others might view about love that, th that seem to be extravagant, to, uh, that, that seem to be sort of um, beyond 
what is necessary, exceeding the bounds of reason. Seem crazy. Extravagance seems wasteful or crazy. And love is that way. And today we're going to look at love. Two kinds, well, two people who love. Because we're going to see that extravagant love begets extravagant love. Faith and gratitude express themselves in extravagant love. And so we're going to start at the end of my big idea. We're going to start with the extravagant love that is expressed because it has received extravagant love. I know I'm doing this completely backwards, but I'm basically following the flow of the text. So, you know, we are going to jump around a little bit within this text. But as we, before we get into uh, John's account of this, I want us to be aware and to remember that there are also two other accounts of this, one of which was already read from, from Mark 14 this morning. But there's also an account of it in Matthew 26. This should not be uh, confused with what we see in Luke's gospel, which is not which is not just prior to um, Passover, but actually takes place in Galilee. So that's a similar sort of event where someone is drying her tears that have fallen upon Jesus' feet uh, with her hair. So there's some similarities with that one, but really, this is more the same event, I think, as what we see in Matthew 26. And, uh, and Mark 14. They're not separate. I think they are the same event. There are details that differ, and this, of course, means that some people accuse the writers of Scripture of duplicity or fabrication and any number of heinous sins. But when we look at the details and, and compare them, and uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, I, I can put that... Uh, together for you and send it to you via a file on on email that will show the things they have in common and the things in which John differs and the things which those two accounts differ from John. Well, not differ. It's not different. It's just that they're supplementary. They're not contrasting facts. It's just that Mark and Matthew provide facts that John does not, and John provides some facts that Mark and Matthew don't. And so these really do fit together very nicely. There's nothing in conflict between them. Okay, So the critical scholars really have nothing to stand on if they try to accuse these of being um, faulty accounts in any way, shape, or form. And so I think A.W. Pink is right when he notes that the details don't contradict, but rather they supplement one another. It's just like CNN, Fox, and ABC. They complement one another, hopefully, anyway. But they show different perspectives on the same event. And so we have different perspectives and details given by the different authors of the Gospels because there's certain things they care about that the other guy didn't care as much about. But God, in His providence and by the working of the Holy Spirit and inspiring the Scriptures, gave us all of it together. So that's good. All right. Gratitude. Gratitude really is what should strike us as we begin to read and think about this text. Because they are at Simon the leper's house. 
And it's most likely because they're at Simon the leper's house that it's Simon the ex-leper's house. Unless Simon himself is not there, but uh, we have every indication, I think, that he was actually there. So Simon himself has decided he wants to throw a party for Jesus. He wants to express his gratitude in hosting the disciples for dinner. Jesus has returned from Ephraim into Bethany. The time has come. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But he's returned to Bethany, and they're grateful to spend more time with Jesus. And they have this party, and we see that Martha is there, and she's doing what Martha does. And what does Martha do? She serves. Okay? She serves. But it's not just, I think, because that's what she does, but it's also a response of her gratitude because who, the, one of the other people who's there reclining with Jesus at the table is Lazarus, her brother, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. She's grateful. And she serves. This seems to be an indication that Simon was perhaps related, part of the extended family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is similar to where Jesus' mother, Mary, in chapter 2, says, Hey, son, they've run out of wine at the wedding. That's, you know, they're part of the extended family, most likely, of that wedding. And so Mary and Martha and Lazarus were probably part of Simon's extended family. And so here the family is sort of gathered with the disciples, and they're feasting. They're feasting there because Simon is thankful. Martha is serving because she loves Jesus. She knows who He is. She has faith in Him. And she's grateful for what He has done for her family. And so these are sort of ordinary expressions of good works. But then comes the extravagant expression of love and faith. And that is Mary. Mary, the emotional one at her brother's tomb, is full of faith and I believe full of gratitude and she expresses her love for Jesus in extravagant fashion. It was extravagant in part because it was expensive. This perfume, this ointment, sort of like, um, it wasn't liquid, but it was fragrant like a perfume. It wasn't quite... But the, the plant from which it comes was from India, and therefore it was very expensive. Okay? 300 denarii expensive. The average worker would get paid, uh, this is the menial sort of laborer, this is the, the, the average person, one denarii a day. And so you do the math, take out the Sabbaths, because you're not supposed to be working, that's about 300. A year's salary is what this was worth. It was expensive for her to do this, which she does. She breaks it open, and she begins to anoint Jesus with this nard, the fragrance of which fills the whole house in a good way. Don't you really... Think about that, right? You really have to love somebody to drop a year's salary in the course of an evening 
in such a way that there is no tangible benefit tomorrow. Men sometimes rejoice, sometimes not, at the prospect of giving a very expensive ring to a young lady whom they love. The ring's still there. The nard will not be. It's going to vanish like the vapors. How extravagant this was and its expense and, and there not being some sort of tangible benefit down the line. Really have to love. It was also extravagant in the way in which it expressed her humility. John focuses on the fact that, he, that she anoints his feet. Now, that's one of the things where uh, Matthew and Mark differ. They mention the head. But when you think about the amount of nard that was used, it usually says a pound, and the word in the Greek refers to about 11 ounces, 11 to 12 ounces, a little short of a pound. But still, that's a whole lot of ointment, isn't it? We have our kids have to lotion up after their showers, okay? Especially Asher and Micah. If not, their skin gets all ashen and looks like we have neglected them. And so they go through this little container of lotion and they apply it to themselves and some of them do it better than others um, in, in the right places as opposed to others. Um, but that little jar, which is about maybe eight ounces, for two people, can last quite some time being spread fairly liberally, as some of them might do, upon their bodies. She has poured this whole thing out, essentially, in one sitting. The idea is that it is probably going from head to toe. Okay, This is the completeness, so to speak, of what has happened here. But I want us to focus on this idea of her humility because... John is focusing on the feet, how she anoints his feet, and how she wipes them with her hair. The cleaning of someone's feet was a task that was given to the lowliest of servants. This is, in a sense, an expression of how she views herself in light of who he is. She does not see herself as big and great and bestowing, condescending to expend this money on Jesus. But she's broken before him and tender. She sees herself almost as nothing before him and is willing to serve him in the most menial fashion. A fashion even more menial than Martha in that moment. But serves him nonetheless. On this, I want to stop and note what a contrast. The disciples in the very next chapter are not going to wash Jesus' feet, but are going to have their feet washed by Jesus, who is then going to say, serve your, one another in this way. She is doing on her own at far greater cost to herself, than what they have to be told to do. Again, in this gospel, it seems the women get it more frequently or more quickly than the men get it. 
she lived what they learned. It's extravagant again in that it was from head to toe. This amount of nard goes quite a long way. I cannot help but think of my dog. My dog is extravagant if you come to my house. She's extravagant in her licks. And if you are seated at the table and you have shorts on, you, you will get a bath unless, unless you brush her away repeatedly, most likely. She's, exa- she's extravagant with her kisses. And so Mary is extravagant and pouring out the ointment upon his body. And this was a good thing. Think of Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And now he compares it. It is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down the collar of his robes. That was a picture of blessing, God's blessing. And here Jesus is being drenched in this nard by the hand of of Mary because of her love for him. It was also extravagant in that it was not just a sign of humility, but it was, in a sense, humiliation. She wiped his feet with her hair. Now, culturally, we don't get that. A woman in that place and at that time did not let her hair down. And that is quite literal. Their hair would be tucked up and under. It was a loose woman, a scandalous woman, who would let her hair down in public. And here, she is not caring about social convention whatsoever, has let her hair down, and is using it to wipe the excess off of the feet of Jesus because she doesn't want him to fall, most likely. Okay? She's a little practical, In this, it probably would have been more practical to get a towel, but nonetheless, she's exhibiting some level of practicality. Sometimes when I think of the extravagant love of Jesus, which we'll get to in a few moments, I wonder, are we embarrassed? Are we humbled? Are we too restrained? in our own reflection of that extravagant love, in our own extravagant, in our own desire perhaps to reveal our manifest our gratitude, to manifest our faith, are we sometimes too restrained in that? Thinking that we don't want to be improper, we don't want to go beyond social convention. I was at a the Switchfoot concert down at the uh, Pima Farms. Not the Pima Farms, that's where I live. Uh, Pima Fairgrounds, that's where I don't live. Um, and I had, this, I had this weird, it's been a little while since I've been to a concert. And so, and I really like this band. And I wanted to sing. <laughs> oh. And in the past, I would sing, you see. But I had... I'm getting old, and I have to worry about my ears, okay? You know, I've already got the tinnitus, so I stick earplugs in there. And one of the things about the earplugs is that while it dampens the sound that is external, it somehow magnifies your own sound. And so suddenly I was very self-conscious about the people around me and not wanting to sing. Why do I care? 
I don't know any of these people. It's not like I'm going to show up and they're going to be there at church on Sunday because there were some songs that are worship songs, so to speak, that they sang that expressed the desires of my heart and I wanted to sing out. And here I am worrying about what other people think. And too often I, I suspect we have desires, uh, ways that we would long to show Jesus our love and our gratitude, but we shrink back because we're afraid of what other people think. Mary wasn't afraid because she loved him that much that she pressed forward through the potential fallout to love him. And her love, again, is a reflection of his extravagant love for us. We will see in a moment that it too has expense, reveals his humility has him humiliated and is complete. And so faith in him and gratitude for grace received should result in something looking like extravagant love. Secondly, Jesus is prepared to die extravagantly. And that is a double entendre. I mean two things by that. And the first is, is that Jesus himself is prepared to die. It mentions that this is before the Passover. Now, Jesus returned to Bethany six days before the Passover. We don't know if that's the precise day that these events took place. It could be, you know, a couple days after he arrived in Bethany. We're not sure. But what you want to do in the back of your mind is hear that, that clock from the show 24. Boop, boop, boop because the clock has begun, the countdown to his death has begun. It is within a week. He has come to Jerusalem to die. He's prepared. He's ready. He knows what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the council, have prepared for him. He even knows what Judas has prepared for him. And he comes because the hour has arrived. What he avoided so frequently we see in John's gospel in the past, he now walks into because the Father has appointed the hour and the hour has come and he does not shrink back from it, but embraces it. But we also see Jesus the good shepherd who defends his lamb from the attack of a wolf and the critics. Because some people saw her extravagant love and attacked her for it. And Jesus says, leave her alone. See, Jesus, though he is gentle, is also not afraid to put people in their place when they're wrong. He could have said, get thee behind me, Satan as he said to Peter, but he didn't say it this, this time. But leave her alone. For this was done for the day of my burial. And now in John's Gospel, that phraseology he uses here, um, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, would sort of lead me to believe that she used part of it and um, was going to save the rest for his actual burial. Um, 
But I think Matthew, so that's a little unclear, Matthew and Mark are more clear and help us understand what John's getting at here. And I think the, I, the point is that he, she is preparing his body for its burial at that dinner. And so not only is Jesus prepared emotionally to die, she is preparing his body physically to die. His death could rightly be said to be extravagant. It would seem to be, from many perspectives, doing more than what is necessary. It would be exceeding the bounds of reason beyond what is deserved or justifiable precisely because none of us deserve it. His death on our behalf. But think about those things we walk through. The expense. It was not costly, monetarily, but it cost him his life. Far more than a year's salary, when you think of it. It was extravagant in its humility as well. We read in Philippians 2 that being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus' whole life was one of humility, but there's even a deeper depths of humility that he goes to in dying upon the cross. And it's not just he humbled himself, but he was also humiliated. When we think of all the cross entails, and I'm not going to get too much into that because it's gross of what happens to the body when it's nailed upon a tree and someone is gasping for breath and their bodily functions are failing. Humiliating. And this is what they did to him. This is what he embraced. It was complete. He went all the way. He didn't just get mostly dead. He got completely dead. And so his death on the cross is the extravagant love the greatest example of extravagant love. In a sense, it's humbling for us to know that we're so messed up that we needed someone to go to that to rescue us. We didn't just need someone to come alongside and give us a few pointers on how to do something a little better. Okay, we didn't need a little instruction. We didn't need a little slap on the wrist. We needed him to die in a gruesome fashion. And yet, he did it. Extravagant love to the extreme. Second uh, Corinthians 8 puts it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. He became poor to enrich us. Extravagant love. And so love... In both of these instances, Mary's love, and even better, in Jesus' love, more important in Jesus' love, 
is not tidy. Love is not clean. But real love is actually messy, it's scary, and it's self-sacrificial. It costs you something. Let's pause for a second. If we're going to love George and Lucette in the next undetermined period of time that only God knows, the clock is ticking. And unlike in Jesus' case, George doesn't know when, if we're going to love them, it might be messy. It will be sacrificial. It will take of your time. It will take of your energy. But love them we must. Right? Love is not tidy. Brothers and sisters, it's not for obsessive compulsive people where everything must be perfectly lined. She extravagantly prepared Jesus for his extravagant death. Third thing I want us to see is that faith, no, sorry, not faith, fear, wrong F word, and entitlement express extreme hatred. Or I guess we could say extravagant hatred. There's a flip side to this story. In the midst of this extravagant display of love, there's a contrast. There's a contrast with what came before it. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, plotting the death of Jesus. And what's coming after it? Judas planning to betray Jesus. You see, their fear and their entitlement means that they are willing to kill and to humiliate an innocent party. But we also find in the midst of this text, thanks to Mark and Matthew, is that Judas is the mouthpiece for some of the disciples. He was not the only one who had this thought, Mark and Matthew let us know, but he is the one who speaks. His rationale is different from theirs. It's far darker. But he says, wouldn't it be better that this would be sold and the money given to the poor? Now, Jesus, Judas... Sounds pretty pious there, doesn't he? He sounds like a good Jew, doesn't he? A righteous Jew. He seems to have a concern for the poor. But that's not what it was about. And John, knowing what laid, you know, the you know, after the fact he knew this, and, and this is what Okay, John doesn't know at that point that Judas is a thief, but Jesus knows. Not only that he's going to betray him, and that's necessary for this, so the scriptures are fulfilled, but the thievery. Jesus doesn't put an end to the thievery of, of Judas. But he is a thief. Judas felt entitled to the money. That's why he wanted it sold, not so the money could be distributed to the poor, but that he could have some of it. For himself. So when the other disciples aren't looking, he's going down to McMahon's for a great steak. 
He wants it for Himself. And He commits at least two sins in this. You shall not steal, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet his wife or his servant or his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. He's coveting the nard. And he wants to steal the money that can come from it. And so when Jesus speaks, he doesn't only just say, leave her alone, but he says, the poor you'll have always, but also, more importantly, I think, you do not always have me. Jesus is not saying that giving to the poor is wrong. In fact, giving to the poor is a manifestation of our love, faith, and righteousness. Jesus pretty much quotes from Deuteronomy 15, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore don't sweat it. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Not cling to your riches, but freely disperse your riches. Similarly, in Psalm 41, we see, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Proverbs 14, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And the idea there would be that the one who despises his neighbor who's poor is a sinner. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor uh, lends to the Lord, rather, and he will repay him for his deed. And so, giving to the poor is a great and glorious thing, and it's an ongoing need that occurs, especially when we think of where we live, Tucson, Arizona. Currently, the fifth poorest metropolitan Whatever. My brain just died. In the, in the country, region, fifth poorest city in this country. That's where we live, folks. We don't have to go far to find poverty. There are opportunities all around us. You don't have to go to the intersections to find the people that might be poor. I'm cynical. I used to work in a rescue mission. I understand how this goes. Okay? I know that there are schemers, but let God deal with that. We don't have to go far to see deep poverty, destitution in our midst. But what Jesus is saying is, not, is all about opportunity. The opportunity to anoint him was a limited time offer. It's going to expire, and she sees the moment. And Judas was wrong to criticize her. Now what happens in Mark's account is that he ties this event to Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. Listen. Then Judas Iscariot, or it could also be therefore Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. 
Do you know what Judas, the name is? Judah. It's the Greek version of Judah. And he's, and he's walking in the footsteps of the first Judah, who betrayed his brother for money, who despised him and sold him into slavery. And this Judas is about to sell him, his friend, his rabbi, for money unto his death. I don't think it's any surprise in the providence of God that his name is Judas or Judah. But think again. What did they do? They stripped Joseph naked from his coat of many colors, tossed him in a pit. The Romans are going to strip Jesus naked and put him on a cross. How deep the hatred must be to want to do that to somebody. Extreme or extravagant hatred. That's not where it ends, even. This story. For John continues that because of Lazarus, or rather the raising of Lazarus, there were many that were coming to faith. And so the Sanhedrin weren't content to put Jesus to death. They're not just plotting to put Jesus to death, but they decide they must also put Lazarus to death. They must undo the work of Christ to try and stop the spread of the Gospel. Their descent knew no bounds. They're spiraling down in free fall of sin. And that's the danger when we sin. It's very easy to spiral farther and farther down. Once you break one boundary, you're easier to break the next boundary and the next boundary and the next boundary, and you can quickly find yourself in free fall as a sinner. And that's exactly what's happening here. Their fear and their entitlement, and that's not just for the the Sanhedrin, but it's also for Judas, they're not content with one sin. Judas was not content with thievery. He wants betrayal too. Stark contrast to the extravagant love of Jesus and its echo in Mary. Our faith and gratitude for Jesus' extravagant love can lead us to show extravagant love for Him. The world will view these things as wasteful, but it's not. Such a love as He showed towards helpless sinners and enemies in humbling Himself unto death on the humiliating cross requires a response of faith and love. Now, wait a second. For some of us, it manifests itself in simple ways like Simon the leper and in Martha. Okay? God's not saying the only way to love me is like Mary. But in some of you, it will be like Mary. Extravagant or seemingly extreme. It's extreme to go around the world like the Wallaces, away from your friends and family, to tell people about Jesus. 
Doesn't that sound a little extreme? That's extravagant love. Jesus receives both the mundane and the extravagant expressions of our love and our gratitude because of his work for us. See, God sees them in Christ despite the imperfections, as we confessed earlier, of our good deeds. He welcomes them because they're motivated by faith, love, and gratitude. And so really how this bounces back on all of us is to begin to think, how are your faith, love, and gratitude expressed? And how might I begin to express them? We need to pray. Father, in many ways this text is humbling. particularly because Jesus had to do that for us, to rescue us. But it's also humbling when we think of how meager our response can sometimes be. How restrained our manifestations of gratitude can be. And so I I ask that you'd set us free by the Spirit, so that our faith, our love, and our gratitude are expressed in ways that you want us to express them according to how you have made us and how you have gifted us and the resources you've placed in our hands to the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.